This podcast is a publication of the Engineering Management Institute, where we build professional development systems to help engineers and their firms grow. You can now download our recently published AE Industry Trends Report, which contains answers to the following questions. How long will the great resignation last? Are firms still allowing remote work and how is it affecting their productivity? How are successful firms using data to create people-centric cultures? You can find answers to these questions and more in our latest report, which you can download at engineeringmanagementinstitute.org. Hello and welcome to the Engineering Career Coach Podcast. In this episode, I'll be talking to Lawrence Romine. He's the Vice President of Corporate Marketing at Altium. He's a naval aviation veteran with 24 years of experience in the high-tech industry and has held numerous design, engineering, sales, and marketing positions across the consumer electronic space, semiconductor, and EDA industries. We'll be talking about the future of manufacturing and engineering and how it will affect engineers. I'm your host, Jeff Perry. I'm the founder of More Than Engineering, helping engineering and technology professionals with leadership and career coaching to create meaningful careers and lives. And this is the Engineering Career Coach podcast brought to you by EMI, the first podcast dedicated to helping engineers and technical professionals with both their personal and professional development. Now it's time to jump into the main segment of our episode. I'm so excited to have with me Lawrence Romine. Lawrence, welcome to the Engineering Career Coach podcast. Well, thank you very much, Jeff. I appreciate the opportunity to chat with you. Absolutely. So, Lawrence, you are the Vice President of Marketing at Altium. Can you tell us a little bit about what Altium is? And we want to know, kind of in your own words, what life looks like for you and where you've come from, your career journey up to date. How I ended up on the dark side. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) I'll go in the order you asked. So we'll, we'll talk about just quickly who Altium is. So Altium is from the the electronics juggernaut of Hobart, Tasmania, Australia is a very remote place. Been around about 35 or 36 years now. One of the pioneers, if you will, in the printed circuit board CAD space. We bumped around for quite some time as um, sort of an unknown player. But as of late, and when I say as of late, in the past sort of 10 years in a major way, but 15 years overall, we've slowly but surely assumed the dominant position in this space. So we make design tools for printed circuit board designers and engineers and and really dominate that space today. How did you get into this industry and what's your background in leading you here? So I call it the dark side, Jeff. And so what intrigued me about your podcast, it seemed to be geared towards younger people and career advice for people in engineering. So my story is a bit very similar, I'm assuming, to yours. I don't know your story, but I have to assume you're like most of the engineers that I know in that you probably knew at a fairly early age that this was kind of your path and this was your calling. And I was absolutely no different. My father was an electrical engineer. I guess you could say he still is. He's still with us. And, you know, there's a book out there that's called Everything I Ever Needed to Know I Learned in Kindergarten. I use that a little bit tongue in cheek. I say everything I ever needed to know I learned in the garage from my father. So, you know, he was a troubleshooting kind of guy. I mean, I remember we had a Heath kit oscilloscope outside in the garage. I'm 48, so to put you in perspective, 
he was an early adopter of all things electronic computers. So I had a computer. I remember I had a TRS-80. I'm sure you don't even know what that is, Jeff. Nope. It was a Radio Shack brand computer you could buy. It would compete with the Apple IIe. Anyway, I had one of those in, shoot, probably 1982. Then quickly had an IBM clone when those became available. And then everything else, my passions were cars and motorcycles. And, you know, I built my first motorcycle with my dad in the garage, probably eight years old, nine years old, and then quickly a car. And then that turned into many cars and that turned into a lifelong passion. Engineering, uh, troubleshooting, all things sort of technology were of an interest to me my entire life. And then in the late 80s, I saw that movie Top Gun. My father gotten me some exposure to private planes. And I saw that movie and, you know, given all my experience with electronics and my passion in electronics and in mechanics, I said, look, that's something I want to do. And smash cut to the 90s. I joined the Navy and got into F-14. So I did uh, avionics for F-14s. And that led me into a career in uh, electrical engineering. My aspirations, Jeff, were always much more geared towards the business end of things. I worked in as a pure play engineer for about four years and then had a guy that was calling on me. He was um, a semiconductor sales rep selling uh, specifically Xilinx components. So FPGA, CPLDs, those sorts of things. And, uh, you know, this guy showed up wearing a fancy suit. He wore suits in those days. He had a nice looking car and, you know, he was always taking me out to a nice lunch and, you know, seemingly didn't do much, but, you know, sort of glad hand and, and generally be a nice guy. Helped me out when I needed something. And I was like, well, what is it you do exactly? And he explained it to him and he says, well, you know, we're looking for people to get into sales, the sales into things that are engineers. And I think you'd be ideal when we make an introduction. And the rest is history. My whole career, for the most part, uh, as an engineer, has been in the business end of things. So I was sales and, and support of Zidlinks components for about six years. I got into um, software business here at Altium. And I've been here 19 years and I just love it. Just love it. So started as a sales guy, been an applications engineer, been a marketing person and now vice president of marketing. So maybe engineers and marketers and salesmen can get along sometimes. Is that what you're telling me? It's pretty difficult to loathe yourself, Jeff. So, I mean, I seem to think it works. That's quite a journey. And, and uh, it's interesting with the, the latest Top Gun movie that came out. I've seen multiple stories online of, of more people that got into aerospace or avionics or other things there. I'm curious to see if, if anyone has collected the data, how many people, like if there was a boon of aerospace, you know, people over the next few years after that movie came out, because I'm sure it influenced many. I suspect it probably did. Yeah, I assume it, it probably did. And, and interesting enough, my F-14 experience was actually here in San Diego at Top Gun. It was a dream come true for me. It really was. And engineering for me has, as I said to you, Jeff, and I suspect much of your audience and yourself, probably very similar. It was something that was a calling. It, I really view it as a lifestyle. I mean, all those things I talked about are still the things I do for fun today. I have a car and I have motorcycles that I do in my garage, tinker with stuff. And, and it's just been a, a real nice career for me. It really, really has. It's been really great. Being that, that you work across a lot of different types of engineering businesses, you have a, you know, with the software that you and your company deliver, you probably have some insights into a number of the trends that you're seeing in terms of manufacturing in particular in PCBs and electronics and things like that. What I hear a lot about is PCB shortages and supply chain issues. 
what are your views on some of the trends that you're seeing in this engineering industry and some of the concerns you have for and some of the problems that engineers can help solve here? Well, that's a big question. It's a large topic. If I could summarize for your audience, the biggest trend that I've seen in, in my 20 now, well, dare I say it's closer to 25 years of, of experience in this industry, and I've worked in all facets of it now. So the engineering side of it, the supply chain side of it, we're talking about the semiconductor business. And now obviously on the manufacturing side, when we talk about all of our customers are, are building a manufacturable product. So, and then that's sort of the last sort of mile of collaboration that we're dealing with, with our products, which I, I'll spare you the, the sales pitch. But the biggest single thing I would say I've seen from an electrical engineering standpoint is what I call the rise of the all-purpose engineer. As I told you that story about having calling to engineering, and, and most of us have the similar story, as I've said now multiple times, but I remember that very almost religious experience, that first thing I ever built where you flipped the switch and it did exactly what you, know, you had anticipated it would do. And you remember very vividly going, or I remember very vividly, man, I, I'm an engineer, like I've, I've accomplished something. Yeah, our software friends call that their hello world experience, right? Absolutely. Yep. The hello world is pretty much everybody puts on the screen. Although in my days, the software wasn't as big a player as it is. The lights did the, in the sequence I expected them to, to turn on. And um, you know, I remember you know, feeling very accomplished and, oh my gosh, I, I did it. I'm an engineer. Well, then you go and you get your first job. And what you realize is that that's unfortunately not a large part of the job. What you're really doing, you're spending most of your time on these other elements, chasing components. When I first got into this business, electrical engineers didn't do board layout. And there was a lot of specialties out. You had manufacturing engineering available to you. You had a component engineer available to you. And you as an electrical engineer, you really drew a schematic. And in most cases, back in those days, you did it on a piece of graph paper. This is the notebook I use on a daily basis. You can see it's graph paper. I mean, this is old habits die hard, right, as they say. What I've seen, the biggest trend is the engineer in themselves really had to assume all of those roles. They are now the, in many cases, a purchasing agent. They're certainly a component engineer. They're required to be manufacturing engineer of sorts. And of course, they got to be electrical engineer just in a traditional sense and the printed circuit board designer all in one. And now what we see happening with data rates going the way they are is now even signal integrity engineering is now becoming the domain of the individual electrical engineer. So they're really becoming a renaissance sort of role, if you will. You really got to have to know a little bit about everything. The interesting thing to me about that, Jeff, is as it relates specifically to manufacturing, unfortunately, what we see happening is we're going backwards. So as the engineers have been tasked with assuming more, they actually have less of the ability to absorb the knowledge because of the manufacturing being offshore. When I was getting into this business, there was still a lot of manufacturing done locally. And in many cases, you could talk to the, the individual that was responsible for the manufacturing. Those days are gone. I mean, everything's manufactured somewhere else. And you're lucky to get an email in many cases. But if you ask, and we talk to a lot of them, these folks that are applications engineers at these manufacturers, assembly houses, as well as board fabricators. And you ask them a simple question, how many or what percentage of the boards that are delivered to you for manufacture go on hold because they're unmanufacturable, either because a component wasn't sourced correctly or no longer available, or more often than not, the engineer designed something that simply wasn't manufacturable. You know, they violated a tolerance, as an example, or they produced a stack up that wasn't quite ideal, whatever the reason may be. I've had people tell me, 
very specific numbers, but the most common response is all of them. Think about that. Every design that's submitted for manufacture is unmanufacturable. And that's because of this pivot that we've seen initially where the electrical engineer is being tasked with more and more stuff. But unfortunately, now obviously this is where I will do a bit of a sales pitch, unless you're using our products, the design process itself has not kept up. And the design experience is really the way I like to refer to it, has not been geared towards you, the designer or the engineer. It has been geared towards, in most cases, somebody with a financial interest, not a design interest. And those two things are at odds with each other. They really are. I'm not a, an electrical engineer, but I've worked with electrical engineers who've done all the things you're talking about. And I did a little bit of board layout in one class in school years ago. But I'm thinking about the applications with some of the people that I, my own experience and some of the people I work with, even in other engineering industries, in some cases, they're becoming what you say, an all-purpose engineer, where someone needs to do the, even a, you know mechanical engineering, which is the area I came from, and you do mechanical design. They're more tasked with doing software and data analysis and going all the way to design for manufacturing and all sorts of things, some of the same supplier issues and sourcing the right materials and parts and stuff like that. Some companies will do that differently and specialize a little bit more, but this all-purpose engineer is something that a lot of engineers can relate with, no matter their domain. What do you think is really the problems that might come of this or the things we need to be aware of if we think of, you know, their economic impacts or societal impacts as we think about this in particular in the, like, the manufacturing space when we're working with physical products here? I saw a major shift in 2008, and that was the financial crisis that we all experienced. That was a significant change. And I'll tell you a story. I was a, either a salesperson here at LTM at the time and or applications engineer. I usually did both roles at the same time. So I was calling on a, an account here locally in Southern California. I won't mention the name, but it, it was a record. You would recognize the name as a large semiconductor player, very large. I went up there and I had, as Altium has always done, at least since I've been involved with them, we do business with the engineers themselves. We rarely, especially back in those days, did we call on an account. We always viewed the customer as the user on a one-to-one -one basis. And, and no different. I um, had a, organized a meeting with one of the lead engineers at this company. I uh, arranged to go up there and he had set it up so that we could have 12 or 15 of his colleagues in the room and do a song and dance. It was a sales pitch, okay? They were considering, they were, the engineers were considering moving to a new platform for printed circuit board design. Anyway, about halfway through the meeting, I thought it was going just swimmingly. Some gentleman walks in. I won't mention his name. I didn't recognize him. I never talked to the guy before. He just sits down in the back of the room, attends the rest of the meeting, doesn't say a word. I end up finishing the meeting, putting my computer away and whatnot. And gentleman walks up, introduces himself. He says, oh, well, my name is fill in the blank. And uh, I handle vendor relations here. And uh, just so we're clear, your competitor provides me box seats at the Staples Center. And that was the end of the conversation. Today, that company is a significant customer of ours. And that gentleman, to my knowledge, no longer has a job in vendor relations. And it's not because he wasn't a fine gentleman. That was the biggest change we saw after the 2008 financial crisis. So previous 2008, people like that gentleman had a job because their number one focus when we talked about you know, design tools, design processes, was cost control. And that's where you saw this big boom of PLM, as an example, product lifecycle management, MRP, ERP, all these three-letter acronyms, TLAs, 
And, you know, huge companies spawned around them. You know, famously, PLM was credited with saving Chrysler Corporation. I don't know if you're familiar with that. You know, the Grand Cherokee was developed for half the cost and half the time, et cetera, because of PLM. Now, that, unfortunately, in the electrical engineering world, that focus on cost always came at the expense of design efficiency and speed. And in other words, well, we have to control costs. Design engineer be damned. We're going to control those guys. And we're going to make sure they don't violate our process so that we can control costs. So, you know, platform design, design reuse, those sorts of things. Well, once 2008 happened, and then the Internet of Things rose simultaneously, corporations moved away from that cost control and just said, you got to do it fast because we got to beat our competitor. The cost control then came in the form of now you're just going to do all the jobs. So you can see all these things sort of colliding. And that's the business we find ourselves in today which is you got to design fast, but you also need to design a manufacturable product. And unless you've got the right tools to do that, you're going to be at a disadvantage. So even in like the last couple of years with COVID and, and supply chain shortages, has that taken another layer of this, what you're seeing? What it did for us, I know this is not a commercial, but obviously I'm very close to the products we developed. The engineer, electrical engineers are, are an interesting group of people in that they're on the vanguard of technology, but they resist change like nobody I've ever seen in my entire life. Maybe that's engineers in general, but okay. That's what I mean. Yeah. It's a weird thing because they're tasked with innovation, but they hold on to things that they really care about. Correct. And I remember vividly in 2007, we released 3D. You see the circuit board behind me. That's a screenshot out of our product. They embellished it, obviously. Our, our arts guys embellished it. But that's a screenshot out of our product. But we released that in 2007. Previous to that, believe it or not, PCB designs were done in 2D. I know for a mechanical engineer, that's mind-blowing. But that's how it was done. And I remember we released it. And I took hostile, I mean, Jeff, hostile phone calls from engineer after engineer saying, this is a gimmick. This is how dare you waste our, we called maintenance dollars in those days. How dare you waste my maintenance dollars on this gimmick of 3D? Those, you know, the peanut gallery was only a little angry for a few weeks because then they quickly realized, oh, this is a game changer. We had a similar experience with COVID because we had a product that we had been developing. We had sort of shown to the public, but it was a SaaS product. So it was a cloud platform that was really to enhance the collaboration of those what we call secondary stakeholders. So the primary stakeholder for us is the electrical engineer, PCB designer. But then those secondary stakeholders are obviously people in the supply chain and people in the manufacturing column. And so we had this product, we had been sort of marketing it and it wasn't released yet. But when COVID hit, it was March of 2019, remember vividly. And we said, well, it's now or never because people need this product. And we released it. We got the same sort of initial reaction. People go on our forums and say, oh, well, you know, here you go, Altium trying to make a profit again. Oh, how dare they? Clown computing, that was something that was used quite a bit. Because the timing was such that it was such a needed thing, people adopted it like hotcakes. And our growth accelerated, believe it or not. We took a little bit of hit that first year, as everybody did. But other than that, we leaned into the pandemic and we came out, frankly, in a much better position, as did our customers and users came out in a far better position than they did before the pandemic, believe it or not. So thinking about just how much the electrical engineering industry and electronics have an influence in our world these days between what we used to communicate, what's hanging out in our pockets, all the internet connected things, IoT and everything else. Like think about this, like how would you describe a world 
without the existence of electrical engineers and what everything that we're able to deliver with electronic means these days. I'm the type of guy that goes to the hospital and looks around and fortunately what not for me, but I, you know, as you do, you need to you know, go to a hospital once in a while for you know, people that you're close to. You get involved in some cases, very sort of detailed conversations about medical condition, but you look around and you go, well, look at this x-ray, look at this MRI, look at this CT scan, look at this, just something as simple as an infusion pump. These are all examples of customers that we have. But, you know, a lot of people say, look at the wonders of modern medicine. And while I think we've learned a great deal about medicine, I really see really more the wonders of, of modern engineering, you know, that have enabled us to make better decisions. Jay Leno is, I'm a fan of his. He has a, a YouTube show called Jay Leno's Garage. I don't know how much you know about Jay Leno, but he's got like 400 cars, right? He spent every dime of his mass fortune on cars. Quite a collection. Yeah, he's got quite a probably the biggest private collection in the world, be my guess. But he also restores the car. Anyway, but he says on his show, I'm just enamored with this, but I believe that engineers can change the world. And I agree 100%, 1,000%. I mean, if that's a group of engineers, you should say 1,000%. But 100%, I believe that, yeah, engineers have and will continue to change the world, impact the world. Right or wrong, stop the end of something good, solve all kinds of problems for some engineering, some more rudimentary engineering challenge. I'm totally there with you. You think about some of the big challenges that we have in the world, whether that's energy, transportation, infrastructure, communication, healthcare. You know, engineers are connected to the innovations that we need to save lives, improve lives, and even down to like feeding the world and optimizing how we use water resources and any other natural resources we have. Like engineers are there and it's a great thing when engineers can be put in opportunities where they can do their best work and be given the support to become great and enabled to deliver the innovations. And also they need to embrace change a little bit more themselves sometimes and look to find more innovation because the world and technology keeps changing. We need to be able to change and adapt with it. And that's part of the process. And Jeff, that's exactly right. And that's one of the things I saw after that 2008 financial crisis, which was, and then the rise of the internet of things, was that now finally what you saw were corporate cultures realizing this and saying, we really need to focus on how do we sort of foster the engineer? How do we get that into to be more productive and be more creative? Because this focus on cost that I mentioned previously as I said, it came really at the expense of the design experience. And that's where you saw so disenchanted engineers, right? Because as I said, that religious experience they had when the lights come on or the Hello World demonstration works, the antithesis of that, I should say, is when they get that job and they realize, well, crap, I'm, I'm not really allowed to design anything. I'm really forced into this design process. And we saw that happen is when our business accelerated, because as I mentioned to you before the, the meeting or the, or the interview, you know, look, man, nobody knew who we were in 2006, 2007. I know that because I made the calls and be like, I don't know who you are. So we, out of just pure survival, we decided we were going to start calling on the engineers. They would take our calls. And then what happened in 2008 was all of a sudden those engineers that we were already talking to became the decision makers because these corporations said, look, I don't know what the hell you do every day, but we need you to do more of it. What do you need in order to get your job done more quickly and more efficiently and more creatively? And they would say, well, I need an Altium designer. 
And well, how much is it? Just go get it. That was the beginning of our climb. So in many ways, not only do I believe that engineers can and are and have changed the world, I've put that into practice in my business since for the past 18 years, 19 years here, 18 years here in Altium, I've catered specifically to them. I do not market to corporations. I do not view my customers as the companies that we do business with. I view my customers, our customers as the individuals that are using our product. And so everything we do is tailored to enhancing their experience. Okay, so you're talking a little bit earlier about like, hey, engineers come out of school and they realize that getting into the corporate world and and jobs is a little bit different. So you've worked with engineers as an engineer, you've collaborated with engineers in your company, you interact with a lot of engineers and the the work that you do, you know, over the last uh, many years. From your perspective, what skills, other than what, you know, the base technology skills and analysis skills that engineers learn in college, right? What are those other skills that can help engineers really thrive and succeed in their careers? A couple of things is most of the engineers we see coming out of school, electrical engineers now that we predominantly work with, obviously, woefully underskilled when it comes to actually building or developing a product. Most of them come out of school with a very solid underpinning of theory, ability to get function, the circuit that will work, simulate it in most cases. But I'm just here to tell you, these kids coming out, young people coming out of school today, you're going to have to do your own board layout. So you might as well embrace it now. You're going to have to source your own components. You're going to have to second source most of your own components. So you might as well get familiar with how to navigate and and understand uh, what the supply chain is telling you. As I said, I cannot understate how important it is to really understand the manufacturing process itself and what is achievable in manufacturing. I correlate it or or analogate it to very similar to the difference between like an architect and a civil engineer. Our architects can draw you a really fancy looking building, but that doesn't mean you can actually build it. You got to be both nowadays. So you got to lean into it. And the second thing I would say is what I find which is what drew me to the what I call the dark side of, of engineering, which is the business side of it. I don't care what you're doing, whether you're an engineer or you're a real estate agent, which is quite literally a sales job. You really should invest in your, your ability to sell an idea. That is, frankly, how I've had any success in this business, be it as an electrical engineer in my early days or on the business side. If you can't sell somebody, just a colleague, on an idea, you're going to be very frustrated, particularly if you're one of the smarter people in the room, because you know you got the right answer. But if you can't sell it, it's going to be a frustrating career. So I highly recommend people that even if you just want to be a guy that sits you know, at a drafting desk and, and you know, just leave me alone and, and I design stuff and that's what I do, it's going to be frustrating for you if you can't sell that idea. You got to be able to do it. And that's been proven to me time and time again in my career. And just because you're young doesn't mean that you shouldn't forcefully try to sell your ideas. If you can get some professional guidance on that, even better. We're all in sales to an extent, whether we like it or not. It's just part of it. Like you said, whether you're selling an actual product or service or an idea or kind of selling yourself, if you're in a job interview, trying to you know take the next step in your career or trying to sell the idea of a promotion, you know, take the next step, whatever that is, we need to sell ideas, if nothing else. So that's great stuff. Well, Lawrence, this has been a fun conversation. At this point, we're going to transition into the Take Action Today segment of the show. We'll get one more final piece of actionable advice from you. We'll be right back. 
Now it's time for a Take Action Today segment of the show. Lawrence, this has been a fun conversation. We've covered a lot of ground, but as we end off here, what's the final thing that you would say to engineers, especially those who maybe are young in their careers, but they have some ideas or data that really shows something that they really want to push on or something that they feel like would really change things? What would you say to them? Don't give up easily. Jeff, there was a couple of times in my career, one time specifically I recall very early in my career, I was 25 years old. I was just starting out. Not only was I 25, but I was brand new to the business side of things. And I had an opportunity to make, at the time, would have been life-changing, life-changing money. Not lottery type money, but it certainly at 25 years old would have been a life trajectory altering amount of money on a deal that I was involved in. And something went a little bit sideways with that deal. And I had all the data as to why it was perfectly explainable, made perfect sense. But the people that I was working with, whom were much older, much more experienced than I was, shut it down. I never even presented my side of the case. I just took it at face value that, well, these folks, I'm 25 years old. What do I know? Right? I'm just some guy that's new to business. I'm, shoot, I'm a, I'm a design engineer. I'm not even a business person. I let that deal slip through my fingers. So my advice to young people just starting out in their career is just because you're inexperienced and you may be young and new to the field doesn't mean that you should give up easily. You know, if you have the be well-researched, always provide evidence for your opinions. And if you have that on your side and you still firmly believe that you're correct, then you need to be um, almost forceful in your conviction in trying to sell your case, which goes right back to the last point from the previous segment of the interview, which is you got to learn to sell your ideas. And if you got the evidence to support it, don't give up. Don't give up at all. Lawrence, that's great advice there as we think about, hey, everyone's got value to share. Like, Don't give up and, and be willing to speak up when it's the right time. So that's great. Well, Lawrence, if people want to connect with you, learn more about you and Altium, where would you point them? So altium.com, A-L-T-I-U-M.com. That's available 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Obviously, Jeff's the magic of the internet. If folks want to contact me directly, that's pretty simple. My email address is lawrence with a W dot Romine, which I'm assuming my name will be on the screen or in the notes below at altium.com. So lawrence.romine at altium.com. Unless you're just heckling me, I'll do my very best to respond to every email I get, which, um, and I'm pretty good about that. So if anybody's got questions, Or hey, if you're looking for a gig in marketing and you're an engineer, we're always looking for folks. Or if you're an engineer and you're looking for a gig in engineering, we're also looking for those folks too. So reach out to me. Well, thanks for a great conversation, Lawrence. Wish you and and your team nothing but continued success. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me, Jeff. Appreciate it. I really hope you enjoyed the episode today. We would love to hear your feedback, comments, and questions. You can go to www.engineeringmanagementinstitute.org where you'll find a summary of the key points discussed in the episode, as well as links to any of the resources, websites, or books that we mentioned. And don't forget to check out any upcoming live webinars also at engineeringmanagementinstitute.org. Additionally, for any engineers who are struggling and need help taking the next career step, I've created some free training resources with an opportunity to join a more intensive program called the Engineering Career Accelerator. You can find more information at Engineering Career Accelerator. Until next time, I wish you the best in all of your engineering endeavors. Thank you for listening. And don't forget to download the latest version of our AE Industry Trends Report to get answers to the questions that you want to ask your staff, but you may be afraid to do so. How long will the great resignation last? 
How long should you allow employees to work remotely? And how are successful firms using data to grow sustainably for the long term? You can learn the answers to these questions and more by downloading the report at engineeringmanagementinstitute.org.